And hello, hello this is Barb Radio. I always miss that. Hi, this is Barb Goldberg of the Evil Stepmother Speaks radio show. And yeah. as you know, on the Evil Stepmother Speaks shows, we talk all things stepmothers, stepfamilies, blended, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And today I am super excited. Um, today we're having Susan Anderson on our show. And what I loved about reading Susan's book is that she is an expert on the concept of abandonment and self-sabotage. And she's actually the founder. You know, I think we take a lot of like a lot of Susan's research and work for granted because she's actually been studying these issues for the past 30 years. And her past books like Taming Your Outer Child and A Journey from Abandonment to Healing probably are a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, buzz terms or concepts that we feel like laymen like ourselves just kind of know, but it's really been a function of Susan's work. And so today, um, I really wanted to have her on because she's the author of, I think, her newest book, which is the Abandonment Recovery Workbook. And it's, um, what I love about it is that it literally is a workbook. So as you and probably many of us love to read self-help books and so forth, this is really a book that not only do you learn as you're reading it and does she do a superb job in explaining things clearly, not only, you know, exactly what things are, but why things happen to us and why we're feeling a certain way, but she gives concrete worksheets on, on literally every page and that we can use to help us work through it. So it was for that reason that uh, I really, really wanted to have her on. So good morning, Susan. I see you're on the line. How are you? Oh, I'm just fine. Thank you for having me. Oh, and thank you for taking um, the time. And I just want to say this to you. Um, you know, I, I know that if you've uh, ever written books and so forth, or, um, when you have like a radio show or any kind of uh, media outlet, uh, people like me get a lot of emails on a daily basis for people that want us to talk to people who wrote books and so forth. And, you know, I, I frankly, me personally, probably most, we don't pick a lot of them. When I saw this, I was like, I'm going to read it. And it, it is really, you, I just want to say you did such beautiful work with this. And I just want to make sure I say that up front. Really, oh, really well you. done. And so let's get into it. So, um, and by the way, um, you know that we're a, fam- uh, a show that talks a lot about stepmoms and stepfamilies, and I thought the issue of abandonment, or, you know, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but even if you, you just feel like you've been abandoned, was this critical? So can you define for everyone um, what is abandonment? Well, abandonment is the primal wound. We all have it. It's something that we all share. Some of us feel it more keenly than others at different times in our lives, but um, it has it has to do with feelings of be, feeling dismissed or the the raw uh, primal wound of abandonment can jangle if um, if you're overlooked at work if if your ideas aren't being picked up on if a friend forgets that it's your birthday when you've made such a big deal over their birthday um, it, if you're fired from a job uh, if you know there are so many things that can trigger abandonment feelings. But the biggest, the biggest event that probably triggers the largest feeling is when you feel rejected by someone you love. That's, that's a very, very big uh, experience. 
but even in smaller ways, we, we go through the day, we may feel little little triggers of, of abandonment feelings that we're not even aware of. It's universal. Uh, no doubt. And when I first, you know, uh, started reading the book, I was thinking, you know, like in our situations, the, I'm talking stepmom land, is that like we're, I think we feel abandoned all the time. I think once we get into it, we feel abandoned by our partners because they have other you know, it could be priorities or other concerns. So we, you know, every little thing we jump on when we're, we never feel like we're first, you know, we start counting, we're big on ranking. And um, it just, it really goes to the heart of that primal room, uh, room like you talk about. Um, and, you know, I know that um, you, uh, you wrote extensively about the five stages of abandonment. Can you take us through it? Yes. Um I just want to say about the step-parent yeah. situation, uh, you know, it really is, is a, a, a situation fraught with abandonment feelings for everyone concerned because, you. you know, it, it creates triangles. So there's the mm-hmm. relationship you have with your partner and then your partner's children. So that becomes a triangle. You're sort of triangulated, left out some of that time. Then the children see themselves in a triangle with you and your partner and there's love or connection of a different type there, and they can feel triangulated by that. So any situation that creates these triangles is very potentially fraught with lots of abandonment triggers. But there are five stages of abandonment, um, uh, shattering, withdrawal, internalizing, rage, and lifting. And they spell swirl, and that's how you go through the process. You kind of swirl through it. Now, if you have a big, huge abandonment, such as being fired or being rejected by someone you love, um, you swirl through within a, within an hour, within a week, within a month, within a year, cycles within cycles, and it's like a hurricane, and you swirl through it over and over, and you hopefully emerge, if you know how to handle the feelings and, and follow the abandonment recovery program, which helps you do that. If you know how to handle the, the feelings, you emerge out of the end of the funnel um, a, a person better able to love and connect than before. Um, mm-hmm. But in the meantime, um, the many minor situations in life, seemingly minor, such as um, having a friend not call us back or something of that yeah. sort, creates tremors of this swirl process. Shattering mm-hmm. is when you feel the, the the rug pulled out from underneath you. And if it's a big, huge abandonment rejection, you feel like a shard of glass that has just been shattered and is mm-hmm. splintered and, and can't find its way back together again. And then the next phase is withdrawal, where you're you're yearning, pining for the loss, for the what you want, to be loved, to be accepted, and you can't get that love fix. And it's akin to heroin withdrawal, and it can be the same as the heroin withdrawal symptoms, such as you, you're strung out, you can't sleep, you can't eat, you have flu-like symptoms. And then the next stage is the mm-hmm. stage that causes the most damage, internalizing, where, you know, we beat ourselves up, we assume we're not worthy, someone has rejected us or somebody has fired us or discounted us, and it makes us feel bad about ourselves. We question our our attachment worthiness, our desirability as a person. And it's very, very damaging to self-esteem when you go through this stage. And then the fourth stage is rage, where we rail against the circumstances, we're angry at the circumstances, 
we take it out on our friends who say stupid things like, oh, just let go and move forward, and yeah. they don't understand what we're going through. And then we're also angry at the abandoner or the boss who fired us or whomever. Um, we're angry there, but if we're codependent and people pleasers, which many of us are who went through childhood abandonment, right? I mean, we're, the abandonment survivors really are a group of people, many of whom are people pleasers, then we don't want to lash out at the abandoner because we might lose yet another crumb of approval. So we have a hard time expressing the anger appropriately, and instead it comes out sort of sideways during this time. And then the Mm -hmm. final stage, not with everyone, of course, the final stage is lifting where you feel intervals of relief from the grief. But the idea with lifting is that when you really begin to lift out of the abandonment grief, which is pretty intense, but you lift out of it, you want to be sure to bring all of that vulnerability, that attuneness with your feelings. You want to bring all of that with you because those feelings become a valuable gift as you make your way into greater love and connection than before. If you leave them buried under the under the calluses that form over the wound, you know, if you leave them sort of buried down there and kind of leave them behind then you can become a little numb in the area of love, and then you can, many people do, develop a a pattern out of that, um, a self-sabotaging pattern where they become only attracted to the unavailable because Mm -hmm. when they're trying to feel something, the only things they can still feel are, you know, deprivation or, you know, insecurity or rejection, so they chase the unavailable. Um, so these, this whole process of lifting is the, is the most crucial part of the process because it's very tempting to just sort of wash your hands and leave it behind. You know, maybe find a new relationship and forget about it, but we've gained something valuable from the other phases, and we need mm-hmm. to incorporate all of that into an ongoing uh, program so that we really continue to reach our potential as human beings. Mm-hmm. Well, are you suggesting that it's it's critical to go through these stages and to go through them in order? Well, you don't necessarily have to go through them in order because some people, depending on their childhoods, um, have more difficult time with one stage than another. For instance, if you grew up, if your parents were, let's say, alcoholic and they were there physically but not emotionally, you probably have a lot of emotional hunger and, you know, codependency issues because you were always wanting something, you were needing something, and you weren't getting it as a kid. So as an adult, when somebody's been in your life and now they're no longer there, that part of it is agonizing and prolonged because you're wanting and yearning and needing something and you can't get it, and it's reminiscent of those uncomfortable feelings you had as a kid. Or let's say you came from a family with a, uh, let's say your mother was narcissistic or borderline or something, or you know one of your parents was critical and punitive and rejecting, um, which is very common. You know, many people grow up yeah. feeling very criticized. Well, when you go through the internalizing phase, that's the middle phase. You know, where you're beating yourself up and you're questioning your own self worth, and you're feeling like you don't have any personal power to hold on to someone that you love. 
you know, when you have those awful self-depreciating feelings, you can get stuck there if you had those that stuff happening when you were a kid. So mm-hmm. you, you go through the phases, you overlap into them, and you, you sort of go through them within a day and within a week and within a year. I mean, there are cycles within cycles, but you kind of have the most bumpy road when you're in those phases that bring back, you know, old stuff. Right. So how, how, what advice can you give us so that we don't get stuck? Uh, well, you know, the thing is that getting stuck is, is something that is not voluntary. It's natural to the process. If you have a certain childhood, that's where you'll struggle the most. Therefore, that's where you'll gain the most strength, you see, because this, what we're doing is we're taking the trauma of abandonment and we're turning it into post-traumatic growth. Uh, post-traumatic strength, post-traumatic victory, you know, post-traumatic growth. So each one of those feelings, even though they're very painful, the idea that we're doubting our self-worth and beating ourselves up and feeling unattractive, feeling no personal power because someone has discarded us and thrown us away, you know, when we're feeling that way, that's, that's a lot of inward energy going on. Mm -hmm. And when we have all that self, obsession going on inwardly we can bring positive things in there that's a time when it opens us up it's sort of like open heart surgery we can do a lot of cleaning and it is bringing back the past we may not remember you know the past Uh, you know there's all kinds of reasons in the brain that we may not remember what caused Mm -hmm. these earlier feelings to, to come back but we we're, we are feeling them, and we can work with those feelings in a powerful new way that allows us to develop strength there, strength that we never had before, a whole new relationship with ourselves, a real good one this time, one mm-hmm. that's based on very substantial um, self-attitudes and self-behaviors. So each phase, even if you do get stuck, it's not your fault. It, it's something within your just composition your with your genetics your family background you know your previous experiences it's your it's your fingerprint it's your abandonment fingerprint uh, at least momentarily but while you're there there's a lot you can do to really launch yourself in a new direction you know when you were talking about the phase about you know internalizing and self you know blaming yourself do you think women do that more than men is there any statistics behind that well, I don't know if women do it more than men because men do it. Um, okay. It's rather universal, but women talk about it. Women are uh-huh. love to take their mask off and just hang out and tell people what they really feel. Um, okay. Like Amy Schumer. I mean, she's the big hit right now. Why? She gets yes. up there and she's so honest. She talks about it, all of it, everything, everything that goes on in her head, all of her insecurities. And, you know, we we really idealize people who can do that. Well, women tend to do that more than men, um, a great deal more. And they do it among each other, and they they do it in public if they they happen to be a comedian or something. Um, Men do it, but they are so embarrassed by having such lowly feelings about themselves. It shows up in their posture, in their gait, and they don't want that. They feel, let's say, uh, performance anxiety, and they get mad at themselves for being such a an idiot that they can't just snap out of it and be spontaneous and show confidence. So they, they go through a lot of personal 
um, turmoil over the mm-hmm. low self-esteem issues, but they're not as open about just, you know, t- talking about it. Somebody like, oh, I'm coming up with co- comedians for somebody, yeah. like for some reason. But Louis C.K., you know, yeah. he comes right out with it, which is so refreshing. But, you know, that's why it looks like women beat themselves up more than men do. Yeah, you know, um, and I just wanted to make sure, because I, I think it's obvious, but, you know, I'm when you wrote the Abandonment Recovery Workbook, was it your vision that it would help you know, people like us, the normal people, be able to go through these phases on our own? It's like a tool. Is that yeah, thinking? it's a self-help tool. I mean, it's great okay. to get into therapy when you're going through, when you've been triggered by something in adulthood because it tells you, okay, there's a lot of stuff in there and I want to make the most of it. I want to work with right. it positively and constructively. It's a great time to get into therapy, but there's also an enormous thing you can do with self-help. And the self-help, the old tools, sort of the traditional tools, I find when it comes to the primal wound of abandonment, aren't effective it's because this is primal fear this comes from birth trauma this stuff is set into the brain so you need really effective tools and they're not magic bullets i have people saying give me five things we should do going through abandonment and i try to comply with at least making it sound simple but in my best effort really it takes a little effort to explain the process because it isn't just a magic bullet. It's an actual series of exercises that are effective. So, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that a workbook can really help with because, you know, it makes it it makes it a step by step easy process, and yeah. it allows it to be self help. Well, I mean, I think what you're really saying is that you know, especially in this day and age, right? Everybody wants the quick fix, but. You know, it, it takes a work just like everything else. I mean, even to go through your book, you need to be committed to it, right? To, yeah. I would know. love the title yeah. of the book to be the Abandonment Recovery Work Book because right. the word work is the, is the key <laughs> word because, <laughs> because people do have unrealistic expectations of themselves and their friends have unrealistic expectations. Hurry up already. Get out of this. You've been suffering yeah. for a year. Come on, hurry up. Um, but the idea is you don't think your way out of this stuff. You, you ah. do your way out. You, don't, you work your way out. And, and you, if, if only thinking worked, then all of that obsession that we have, you know, the rumination, the going over it, the talking our friends' ears off about what went wrong in the job or the relationship, all that, that would then play, play out something positive because we sure do enough of that. But that doesn't help. It only embeds it in further. We can't turn the switch off, but what we can do is divest time in doing things, doing, doing, doing. So the workbook put, puts a pen in your hand and says, right. okay, do a checkoff list, uh, you know, do multiple choice, uh, write, finish these sentences. Uh, you know, it gets you doing with a pen, but it also gets you taking little behaviors, baby steps that begin to reprogram, you know, your, your, the patterns in the brain. It actually is physical therapy for the brain. Mm-hmm. Well, I just need to tell you up front that um, I will give you credit, but I am tweeting out, you don't think your way out, you do, you do your way out. Expect to see that um, 
uh, on my social media with your name next oh, to good. it. Oh, good. Too perfect. Yeah, it's really so, it's <laughs> counterintuitive, it really, sort of, because people, you know, we don't, healing doesn't come naturally from this kind of thing, because what healing, we use our cerebral cortexes, and so we use them to analyze and figure it right. out, and oh, ooh, ooh, and that may be helpful to some small extent. But healing this is in the body because it's embedded in the brain and it's in the body. You know, it's in the brain body. It's in, it's it, it's part of us. And so the healing is in the body. And we don't. We have to get the body moving, even if it's just a pen in our hand. That is far better than reading it. Just reading it, that's good, but not as good as pen in hand. Right. And that and you know isn't just... as good as taking a step, a behavior. Well, Lynn, let me ask you this. It's a little bit off topic, but it reminds me of it is that, you know, it's like working out, right? And, you know, like, you know, you think about it a lot, like, I really should, I really should, you know? And even when you watch, you know, some of the shows on TV reality shows, while everyone else is working out. And, like, you know you should, but you don't do. You're thinking and then you're doing. Is that a normal process or is there something going on in our brains that stops the doing? Yeah, there's something enormous going on in our brains, and that's an outer child behavior to 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 make a plan to do something and then not do it. It's procrastination, mm-hmm. avoidance. These are all outer child behaviors, you know, all self-sabotaging behaviors. Right. And the reason we have self-sabotaging behaviors, and listen, we all have them. I right. have them. You have We all have them. Some of us have a lot of it. Some of us are mostly outer child. And some of us just, you know, procrastinate when we wish we could follow through and so forth. But the reason we have these behaviors has to do with the depreciation of self that went on in childhood as we swirled through abandonment in childhood. We um, learned, you know, negative feelings about the self. And what happens is we abandon ourselves. That's what happens. We abandon ourselves. So the way it works is this. We love ourselves, but only enough to give ourselves the piece of chocolate cake, but not quite enough to forego that immediate gratification and stick to the diet. Or we mm-hmm. love ourselves only enough to give ourselves a nice little nap, but not quite enough to put on the gym shoes and go down to the gym and sweat for an hour. We love ourselves, but not quite enough to stay up all night studying for the uh, exam. We love ourselves... The, we like ourselves or love ourselves only enough to maybe go out with our friends and have a ball. So we succumb to immediate gratification rather than following our long-range dreams. And so we abandon our goals and our dreams. And that's how we abandon ourselves. And, of course, that's reversible, and it's reversible one baby step at a time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, succumbing to immediate gratification is so universal we all do it to some extent i mean there's no reason for people to walk around feeling guilty that they do this because mm-hmm. we just do it we it's a very common natural thing but people who really have high regard for themselves high regard and who practice this this exercise that helps develop that um people who either have it because of their family imbued them with it or whatever um really do follow goals and get a lot done. And yeah. so we can do that. We can start to reach our dreams, even if the dream is finally finding a loving relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. that eludes a lot of people, millions of people. Um, read my books and attend my workshops. 
because they haven't been able to find a relationship and they've given up and they're so despondent and they they just they come to the workshop maybe with a glimmer of hope they read the book maybe with a glimmer of hope but basically they've given up but uh-huh. if they do differently and they start to follow a program oh they can have that dream but they have to love themselves enough to take the steps and the steps are work <laughs> you know it isn't you don't think your way out of that problem you have to take actions, many, many, many little actions to add up to a whole right. new life. Right. I want to clarify one of the things when we started this segment of the conversation, which is incredibly powerful. Um, you said that a lot of the, um, you know, the self, uh, I don't know, sabotage, degradation, whatever, it comes from the depreciation of self during childhood. Does that mean um, from our authority figures? Um, messages that we received during childhood is that i just want to clarify what you meant well you know we some of it is from messages and a lot of it is because we compare ourselves to others so let's say in childhood um let's just say we had a learning disability this is Uh very common i mean so many kids have various ones and so we're sitting in a classroom and all the other kids can do the math problem and we're not sure even where to start well we compare ourselves to our peers so self-depreciation is something that we that we pick up from, you know, not being good at sports or whatever it is. We pick that up. We weren't the first one picked for the for the dance, you know, whatever. So many things happen. We're not a member of the most popular group, or you know, we pick up these feelings of depreciation. And also, people say and do things that hurt our feelings. Mm-hmm. But it could even be something that isn't intentional. Like let's say. Um, our mother dies when we're in childhood. Okay, why would that cause a child to have low self-esteem? Well, it's because when, you know, I worked with kids for a long time trying to deconstruct these things. And Mm -hmm. what it is is that a child feels, well, the other children are special because they have a mother. Mm -hmm. But you see, I'm not special because somehow fate has seen to it that I don't have a mother. I'm not as special as they are. The other children are special and I'm not. So even impersonal things cause children to doubt their specialness, their worth, and these things are carried with us as we go through life. And, of course, here's what happens. You have good experiences, too, so you also have a good thing. You know, you have confidence, you have a a good self-image in some ways, but when you get hit with a trigger, such as a friend doesn't invite you to a party or Mm -hmm. your boss overlooks you for a promotion or somebody you love doesn't call you back, or, you know, rejects you. Well, when you get hit with these things, that's bad. those bad feelings about yourself come right to the forefront. The good stuff mm-hmm. hides for a while, and there you are feeling absolutely worthless and, you know, sort of like ineffectual and unattractive and all of those things because it's been, you know, accumulating since childhood. Right. It seems like a miracle that somebody would come through childhood and and just have all the pieces put together. <laughs> Who are these people? Well, you know, but, if you have a lot of good experiences, you can pretty much coast on the part of the self that has all the good feelings. Until you hit a bump in the road, 
I mean, I know plenty of people who seem to have been unscathed in childhood, mm-hmm. and they feel pretty good about themselves, and in fact, enviably so, because how dare they be so uninhibited? How dare they have so much confidence and just never hesitate and just jump out there and perform so well? But they do, and that's what happens. But if they should get hit between the eyes with the love of their life leaving them or something of that sort happening, all of a sudden, then... The, the little tiny, perhaps, negative things that also occurred, are, which are cumulative, you know, they, sort of the brain just sort of sorts them all, you know, and it all comes washing back. They suddenly feel themselves with a lot of self-doubt. Well, so you know, it, it yeah. happens. Yeah, and, and it also brings me to um, the classic conversation that those of us in the uh, step-family world have constantly. The number one subject that everyone wants to talk about is the ex and when you think about that relationship right you know stepmother versus ex it's got every single childhood thing that you know classic and classic stories obviously the myth but still it's the the prettier girl thing you didn't get a date because somebody wanted to go with someone else or just you know the more popular person or all the classics I mean it sets it all up and which brings me to my next question which is like it feels like the negative things in life get stuck in a more permanent role than the positive things. So, you know, I see a lot of it with my clients too, that they just get stuck off the, you know, they just want to talk about the X, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, is that like getting stuck in one of the five stages? Is, is that what's happening? Well, you know, it's very hard to let go. Um, there's a lot of reason that locked into the brain for why we have such a hard time to let go it has to do with the fact that when, if the, there was pain in the leaving, in the ending of the relationship, well, that pain actually intensifies the bond. So it actually creates a hook and makes that person more important in, in the emotional part of the brain. And it's a whole brain thing, really. It's, it's, right. it's a little bit beyond our control, although we can do a lot to, to work past it with, with the program, but it's not easy. It's not as easy as people would like to think. It drives our friends crazy because they can't get over that we're still so stuck. But, um, you know, nonetheless, it, it, the fact that we were hurt embeds that person more deeply. And, and that's that's something that seems paradoxical, but that's that's really how it works. Well, does this all harken back to our our you know tribal uh, mammalian lizard brain that that's really trying to protect us at all costs? So it feels pain at some point, feels like it's coming again, and then wants to set off alarms. Well, you said exactly what it is, exactly, because it is the emotional brain, which is, you know, it's a more primitive part of the brain. We have the cerebral cortex, and we have the the mammalian brain, you know, and below that we have the reptilian brain, and those parts are the ones that are impressed when something is threatening. If you have happy experiences, sure, that's nice, and, you know, they register somewhere, too. They create nice little biochemicals that are feel-good. But when you have stuff that makes you feel threatened, it it charges you with that fear of abandonment, that primal fear. Uh Uh-oh, I'm learning disabled. I'm going to get left behind. I'm going to be left in the dust. I won't be able to... uh, cut the mustard, oh, I'll be ostracized. You know, when, when you feel threatened, that impresses the amygdala, which is the seat of that emotional brain. That's the very primitive part mm-hmm. of the brain. And so those, any experience,
experience that makes you feel threatened, let's say your mother dies, your parents are alcoholic, all those things that I mentioned, now when you become an adult, those things stand out because they are embedded in the emotional brain. The happy experiences are certainly collected. It helps us. It's working for us. But the ones that really uh, create the emotional reaction are the ones that made us feel threatened. Great. And is this one of the is this the core biological reason why it takes us like so long to heal from a As loss? As a matter of fact, it is because it's in it the is. brain. Because okay. abandonment is a trauma, and through childhood, it's a perfectly natural trauma we go through you know there it's inevitable to go through some trauma as we go through life um and it's embedded in the brain it's an actual mechanism that that records the trauma and makes it so enduring and so yes um this is this is what it's all about so is this also the same reason that the people that have hurt us in our lives or abandoned us it's often it's probably the same is this the same reason that they become such important figures in our lives Yes, with, with the brain, yeah, the, same thing. The, the amygdala yeah. puts them in, you know, they, they become threat. And that means we have highly charged reactions to them. And then our wires get crossed and we start to imagine that because they're, we feel so highly charged that they must be very special. And then, you know, the cerebral cortex gets in and makes inappropriate conclusions. There's nothing special about them, maybe. Maybe they're not special at all. They did was hurt us, you know, but that makes them very right. special. And then in, as, when we seek a future relationship, we can once again seek an abandoner or somebody who's emotionally unavailable because somehow that registers now because we already have that experience in the brain. Oh, why people seek them out again. Yes. Oh, you know what? Yes. You know, I started to chuckle for a minute. You made me think of um, that situation when, I, have you ever had this one, um, where, like, let's say a guy will do high school because that's always, you know, filled with emotion. And there was some guy that um, – you know, was mean to you or said something mean and you've been thinking about it all these years, you go to a reunion and he doesn't even remember who you are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes, for us, how insignificant can you feel? Yeah. But you remember it because he was inflicting the pain so he wasn't remembering it. Because it was pleasurable perhaps. You know, yeah, it's I just... the it's the pecking order. He's at the top feeling good, you know, he's the one kicking the dog. He doesn't feel it. But the one being kicked that one remembers it. So is your um, best advice to get over um, painful abandonment, is it to go through, just to recognize the swirl process, and is that one of the most powerful things you can do? Yes, it is. You know, people say you have to work through the pain, and for the right. life of me, I don't know what the heck that means. I've said it myself right. to many people, work through <laughs> the pain. Um, <laughs> uh, there's even a hand motion that goes with it, work through the pain. But right. what you're doing is you're learning how to use the feelings in a constructive way. Those feelings are very valuable because they allow you to build a new relationship with yourself because they bring you in touch with your abandoned inner child, which is something you use your imagination to create. But once you create the image of your abandoned inner child, it becomes very real. And in, in developing a relationship with that creature and adopting that creature who you created out of your imagination, you are starting a new relationship with yourself. So you now know what he or she is feeling. They're, they have all these vulnerable feelings. At each stage, there are powerful feelings. There's nothing wrong with those feelings. It's 
they're precious gems. When we learn how to administer them to ourselves, and you know, there's an exercise which I'll explain, but when we learn how to do this, well, then we don't have to lay our needs at other people's feet and give our power yeah. away. We can complete our own loop and not have to look for approval and love from the outside world to such an extreme. So we feel a little bit more secure within ourselves and more personal power and because we're not just waiting for someone else to come along and approve of us or love us because we're doing that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it involves, you know, a dialogue which used to be called the inner child dialogue. Yep. But I found that the way, you know, the, the, I had been trained in that, and um, I found that the, the way that it was positioned originally did was not effective for me when I was going through my abandonment and also proved relatively ineffective with the clients that I used it with. Mm-hmm. I ran workshops in it and so forth, and I knew that there was something a little different, something that needed tweaking. But when I went through my abandonment, I found a new way of positioning the dialogue and adding a voice, the outer child voice, adding, you know, creating a framework that that puts the inner child work in a context that actually made it more effective. And so there's a way of positioning the adult self to the inner child, the abandoned inner child that allows for not just lip service, but actual contracts being written back and forth. And you're basing your commitments to your abandoned inner child not on some abstraction, but on a process where you're getting that creature that you've created yourself to really talk about those feelings, those deep, very important feelings, so that every feeling that we have during the abandonment process becomes a valuable gem, the anger, the the self-doubt, all of it, it all becomes usable. So if that's what working through means, well, so be it. But it's more than working through, it's working with and using those feelings to create a victory. When you learn how to make yourself the object of your own devotion, it's life-changing. Your whole way of doing things changes. Wow. You know, it's. Um, I was also thinking, um, because I always think in relationship triangles, that one of the great powerful things is once you can work through this in yourself, the ability to have compassion for another. You know, yes. for example, in our world, it's always it's always the ex and you know all that. Sorry, this. and um, it's always you know it feels like a lot of us can't possibly see that the other side is feeling vulnerable and the other side has an abandoned child also. Yes. Well, the beauty. And we're triggering them. Yes, but this is the beauty of it. When you get in touch with your own so-called abandoned inner child, you realize that everybody has one. And from that point on, you can relate to people adult to adult, but you can with the sensitivity of relating to that person's inner child. So that even includes your ex. It takes Mm -hmm. some of the sting out and allows you to have more effective communication. But with your new partner, it's a wonderful thing when the partner's relate to each other's inner child 
because we mm-hmm. can get into power struggles, you know, yep. we can get into silly things, you know, the jealousies, the triangle feelings that you get, you know, all that stuff. We can get into that, but when we recognize that that everything we do is affecting the other person's inner child and everything they do is affecting ours, we right. can actually have a relationship based on the two the the people being sensitive and Re- recognizing each other's inner children. I love this. I can. I just envisioning like all my families that were really on the playground, not really in adult settings a lot of times. So it always comes to mind. Yes. Like envisioning yourself on you know in the early days when we used to be on the playground. A lot of it is. Um, it just reminds me of that. And you know, um, one of the things that came up was this notion of like following your gut. And um, I know you, you have some thoughts about that. I mean, I think a lot of people say that, well, you know what? It just felt like it was the right thing to do. I'm going to follow my gut. Yeah. Um, are you on board with that? Yes. Well, not, not completely because when right. you, in abandonment survivors who, you know, who went through stuff in childhood and so forth um, or have had some adult pretty hard knocks, your gut gets confused. So if you follow right. your gut, you're liable to chase after a lot of unavailable people and potential abandoners who will hurt you over and over again. In my case, when I was young, a young adult before I got married, I was very attracted to extremely critical guys who were, you know, they were rejecting and critical. They seemed great at first, but it turned out that they had this critical side. Mm-hmm. And I guess I knew they had it to begin with because they would be critical of other people. So they just weren't critical of me yet. But I would be attracted to that, see. And then Mm -hmm. that was the worst kind of person for me because once they turned criticism toward me, I I caved. I was completely devastated because my father had been severely critical. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn that if I was attracted to someone, to run in the other direction. So my gut always had me sort of pursuing these critical types, and I had to learn to say, nope, I've got to lead with my wisdom now. I've got to learn, I've got mm-hmm. to learn from experience and lead from what I've learned. And I did. I started to make choices based on what, not what my gut was saying in that instance, because it was having me, you know, it was having me like a challenge, always trying to, to you know, chase a gold nugget or something. I yeah. had to use my wisdom, a different part of the brain, and actually lead from that, and it worked. Right. Well, you know what you made me think of? I was thinking to myself, you know, in terms of like a sociological perspective, like, like generations, like um, I'm thinking like my parents and um, – my children are grown, so you can do some age math, you know, that, you know, they really were taught to kind of parent from a critical, like a whole generation. Yes. You know, that's how they learn. You, know, you would get punished. It was like a critical thing. It was sarcasm. It was a lot. I mean, it was like a whole generation. They just did what they knew. And so probably a lot of us did a fair amount of that to some degree. And I'm wondering if that's what's creating, you know, this generation that often gets talked about where like you get, you know, good job, <laughs> good job, like on everything, that well, it's almost I, a fear become, of, 
of yeah. the criticism, you know? Well, yes. It becomes a little nauseating that children are, oh are praised for blinking, you know. Um, but anyway, it's so different from, you're right, how we were raised. Because, and, and it depends on the culture, too. Some cultures, like mine, subculture, who knows what we call my culture, I don't even know. But, it, you know, we were raised not to have swelled heads. We weren't supposed to be mm-hmm. self-centered. We were supposed to take our equal piece of the pie and not think too highly of ourselves and not have an ego. And yeah, so don't, we were don't brag. Down. Remember that? No bragging. Absolutely no, no bragging. bragging. And, and pride goeth before a fall and all of this. And it was very clear that we had to be selfless creatures who, did not ha- who were unassuming and had no, you know, real sense of ourselves. And we were slapped down by all relatives. You know, everybody participated because it was a big cultural event. And you know what? I'm proud of myself for being humble. I happen to be someone humble. Other people feel very comfortable with me because I don't think who the heck I am. You know, I don't have that veneer. And and I am proud of that, but I also envy other people who can strut around, too. I have envy mm-hmm. of that, but I'm yes. also very pleased with the way I was brought up. And today there's a backlash against the way I was brought up, and you were mm-hmm. alluding to, with yes. this good job for everything that a child does. Well, it's so funny. Um, I have young grandchildren now, and almost every one of them, when when they first start talking, um, one of the first things I've noticed that they all say when they're, you know, after mommy, daddy, and the rest, they say, good job. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, it, but every, I don't think there's a parent out there that doesn't do that. I think it is so much a part of today's culture. So different from the previous culture. Oh, I know. Well, it just I'm just saying that, you know, as we're talking about this in sort of like a smaller space kind of, I just wanted to bring it up that it has like, you know, it's a cultural thing. It's a it's a global thing. It's you know, a global when we talk thing. about all this. Yeah. And um so I know one of the things that um you talk about is a personal love map. Can you explain what that is? Well, you know, we all have a sort of a love map, and it has to do with all the crossed wires that we acquire because anybody who hurt us, then the brain thinks that's a special person, you know. So we, oh. we associate being hurt with, with someone we love, and we, we get all these crossed wires. And so if you picture the love map, it can be a pretty tangled-up, snarled thing. And, of course, what we need to find is someone who whose love map can work with ours. And hopefully as we're looking for for connection with other people we're also working on understanding our own love map where those wires are twisted what can we do to you know kind of straighten them out a little bit and and make, create less chaos in that whole area of who who we value who's put on a pedestal and and learn how to value people who really are very genuine and would have a very hard time you know performing an act of abandonment on another person. Um, So we're working on our love map. And, you know, having said that, I have to say that I work with a lot of people who come to my workshops and they they contact me at my website and they read my books. And there are, I would say, you know, probably millions of them, and I've worked with probably a thousand of them, who um, have a pattern where they keep losing interest after the person that they've been pursuing is caught. So they're pursuing someone yeah. and they get the person finally. 
And then right. they, they feel so guilty, but they lose interest. They're, they just shut down. They can't feel it anymore. They feel horrible when they're with the person because they all of a sudden can't feel the connection. They have no feelings, and they just have to leave. And they don't want to keep hurting people. They've become abandoners, but they don't want to be. Mm-hmm. They want to settle down. They want to love. A lot of movie stars, you know, celebrities yeah. have this problem because they are so eligible and they have so many options, but they lose interest when they actually catch the person. And so they wind up alone and not feeling a connection, not having that love feeling. And it makes them feel terrible and guilty, and they don't want to keep doing that. And it's a very difficult problem to solve because it's in their love map (laughs) you know their love map has this this is part of its glitch and so they have work to do and they can do it it's doable but you know it's work it takes work do you recommend people actually sketch out their their love map um i've had people do it um because Mm -hmm. they actually they get pretty much uh, you know uh, they they develop a, a real they deconstruct it and they become aware of you know a lot of it and they're able to I don't know if it looks quite like a map but they it's sort of a diagram right um, and yes I've had people do that but a lot mm-hmm. of us the love map a lot of it is just being aware of it and okay. you know a lot changes from that beginning point but then on top of that. As you become aware of it, you think, oh, gee, this is just a little bit tougher than I expected because now I know that, let's say, I'm attracted to the unavailable. But how do I know? How do I fix that? It keeps happening. How do I fix it? So um, that's where the work comes in. So the awareness is very important, and there's a lot to deconstruct, and there's more and more awareness that we can gain. But then comes what do I do about it, and what steps can I take? Right, right. Um, you know, I see another subject that um, I know you talk about, and I really want to address it because it's definitely an issue in a step family, is that um, the whole issue of feeling lonely, you know, I know we're switching around a little bit, but <clears throat> can you explain to us the difference between being alone and feeling lonely? Although I think a lot of my stepmoms might feel like their hands are raising right now and saying, I can answer that, you know. There's a lot of people around. Yes. Well, let me say that uh, being alone is not a negative thing. We're all born alone. We die alone. No matter if we're in a relationship or not, we're all alone. Existentially, we're alone. And being physically alone, living on your own, doing things by yourself is a wonderful opportunity, especially if we choose it. It is. Right. It's great. In fact, we can be so good at it that after a while we can't imagine ever sharing the space that we live in with anyone else. No kidding. So, yep. Yeah, because being alone really is a, it's a wonderful lifestyle. And, and many people choose it. It's, you know, you have religious orders who, who celebrate the being alone mm-hmm. and isolated. So, you know, it is, it, being alone is not a problem. Loneliness is a feeling. It's an emotion. And right. It, it's a feeling of needing connection and not having it. And you can even feel lonely when you do have connections, but they're not present. You can mm-hmm. even have loneliness when you have connections. But imagine how many people, millions, don't have connections. They have friends, but not connections, you know, not those right. special feelings. 
millions of people are in that position. And they even feel that way with their own children, you know, because they can be estranged. Their kids can become difficult and critical of them and move away and, you know, go to therapy and have their therapist convince them that the parents are no good or whatever, you know, all kinds of things. And people can actually feel at loss for human connection. And it's a very painful feeling. Yeah. And do you envision using the swirl process to help with that as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, we can't, feelings are involuntary. We can't just snap our feelings and get rid of them. We can, uh, loneliness very often is lack of connection, and we can do things to intensify connection and cope with that feeling. So there's just a lot. The swirl process really is, you know, a complete program of Mm -hmm. working with all of these feelings. So how do you envision that we, all of us, can take steps towards emotional and spiritual healing then? Well, my recommendation is to be prepared to work. Um, That's one. And then the other one is to not not aim for perfection. Um, perfection is not our friend when we want to fix these things. We have to be willing to be on a continuum where we're inching forward, and that can sometimes make the difference. Yes. You don't need to suddenly go from not from being codependent to being non-codependent. You just need to be a little less codependent. And then that change can completely change everything. So what we're doing is we're evolving. We're using a program, willing to work at it, and do the work. Do the work. Right. And right. it can make the difference. Well, you use the symbolism of the black swan in, in your book. Can you yes. explain that yes. to everyone? Yes. Well, I, when I went through my own abandonment, when which almost killed me, the day that he moved out to leave me for another woman um, after 18 years of being madly in love and all of that, I in the harbor I took a walk to try to find something to do with myself besides, you know, just weep. And there was a black swan in the harbor. And it was very uh startling because we're on the east coast there are no black swans. Right. And so it inspired me to kind of pursue what this black swan might have meant and it, what happened was the, it, the black swan, as I studied the swan, became a vehicle for developing the 12 lessons of abandonment recovery. So hmm. these lessons are emotional, spiritual healing steps that I folded into the workbook. All of the 12 lessons are in part of right. the workbook. It's right. also a separate book, The Black Swan. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a lovely symbol. and it's, it's, It makes you want to just, it's very touching. Um, I still wonder what it was doing there. Yes, it's yes. lovely. Oh, and there's one more thing. I know that um, you have another process called a Akeru. I don't know if I'm saying it right. A-K-E-R-U. Akeru? Yes, Akeru, yes. Akeru. Can you explain that to everyone? Because I, I love that, and I also saw yes. it online on your site. But well, Akeru means to begin and to end. It's a Japanese word. It has the double meaning, to begin and to end, because that's what abandonment is. It's the ending, but it's the beginning. It's all right. this growth. So the Akeru program is five, the five stages of abandonment and the 12 swan lessons that you use to work your way through the process 
so that each each sad feeling and each each sort of feeling of turmoil becomes the beginning of new growth. So the oh, exercises great. are very hands-on and very practical and, you know, are designed to actually become a beginning and actually create change. Yeah, I, I love it. And, it, and I, was gonna, I was also saying, besides it in the books, that there's a lovely diagram of it on your site. Um, one more, the last questions, and then we'll make sure everyone knows how to find you. Um, feelings of insecurity and rejection, usually they linger even after, you know, the guy or the person that rejected you is long gone. Um, why do these feelings just stay with us? Can't we get rid of them? <laughs> Well, uh, it's the post-traumatic stuff. You know, abandonment yeah. is a trauma, and the post-traumatic stress comes out as insecurity and anxiety and, and all of that. Um, and it, it's involuntary. We don't have a switch. Unfortunately, we don't have a switch. So we can't mm-hmm. just say, oh, let me not be insecure. These are lingering feelings. It's post-traumatic stress. It's, it even could be post-traumatic stress disorder where you have it almost permanently, um, you know, where you have intrusive anxiety and insecurity. Um, and a lot of people have it. It's very common. Um, but there's a way to reprogram the brain and, and it's physical therapy for the brain. Doing the exercises helps mm-hmm. you to cope with the anxiety and rechannel it and even helps it to dissipate. Yeah, and you know what I'm thinking from listening from the whole conversation is that, you know, having experienced or feeling the experience of abandonment and, and the rest of it, don't you think it makes us much more interesting people and a lot more fun in a way? I wouldn't trade my abandonment for anything in the world. I'm not a Barbie doll or a Ken doll. I'm, I'm a very, I'm a bonsai tree. I have bends in my, I, I'm all yeah. bent and I'm twiggy. I have knots and bends, and that makes me very much more interesting, and I prefer people who, who can share that with me. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking, I would go to happy hour with her in a heartbeat. This is, like, too fun. Wouldn't that be fun? I know. You're in New York. But listen, um, would you uh, mind doing all the listeners and people download these shows many, many, many times over and over, you know, months and years down the line when they find that they need it? So um, would you let them know how people can find you about your workshops? And I know you have many books and so forth, let them know how we can find you. Okay, we'll go to abandonment.net, and you can Mm -hmm. reach out to us, and you'll get a response. Um, And you can find out about all the books and all the workshops, because bringing people together around this topic is great. It is really great. And I'll tell you what, I appreciate your time more than you know. I just... When I read this book, I was like, I'm going to grab her because this is, this is going to be so helpful and, and um, to all of us in the step family world. So I thank you so much, Susan. I really do. And um, when you have another book, contact me again. I'd love to have you on again. Okay, well, that's Thanks great. for your thank time. Thank you so much. All oh, right. Thank you. Okay. Sure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. And with that... Uh, this is Barb again. I just wanted to remind you for any stepmoms out there that feels like you need some additional support, don't hesitate to contact me. And I want to give you a, a little bit of a list of a bunch of places. Um, I'm on Facebook at TheEvilStepmotherSpeaks.com. And, of course, on my site, the evil 
Speaks.com, you'll find the blog, and you'll also find other resources. Like if you feel like you need one-on-one coaching, you can contact me there. Um, as well as um, I also run retreats with my partner in crime, Jenna Korf of Stepmom Help. And we have retreats um, every year for stepmoms. And also um, just we haven't, there'll also be retreats for couples also. So check the website, uh, stepmomsanctuaryretreat.com and the schedules there and, and everything you need to know about where we're going and where we're going to hold them. And we would love to have you there. We found that the retreats have been life-changing. And of course, you can also read my book, which is a super fun read. And I think you'll relate and you'll laugh and you'll cry. It's called The Evil Stepmother Speaks, shockingly, a guide, a guide for stepfamilies who want to love and laugh. So I'm at Twitter at, at Stepmom Speaks and uh, same name and Instagram. So um, hopefully all is well with your families and we'll talk again next time. Take care. Bye.